with love and respect. And, and from your pastors and the board, we just want to thank you for being God's people. Thank you all for letting me come and be your pastor. It's a huge honor and a privilege. Some cool stuff's going on, isn't it? We're a polarized country. I know that comes to you as no surprise. Many of you are feeling the pain of that, especially after we've passed the first government payday during the largest partial government shutdown that we've experienced. And if the polls are right... We're becoming a more divided country, even among those who we associate with. Now, I'm talking about politically. There was a Pew Research um, poll that went out just a couple years ago that said Democrats and Republicans don't have many friends in the opposite party. 64% of Democrats and 55% of Republicans have just a few or zero close friends from across the political aisle. And that number has been declining. Uh, CNN reported the number of Democrats and Republicans who saw the opposing party as very unfavorable has more than doubled from 16 and 17 percent in 1994 to a broader 44 percent and 45 percent today. Divisions happen. And we're feeling that in our country right now. Unfortunately, they don't just happen in politics. They can happen in marriages. They can happen in family relationships. And they can happen in churches. Church splits, church divisions happen. And if you've been part of one of those, you've felt the pain of a church split or church divisions. It can, it, it can happen for a number of internal reasons. It can be financial, it can be doctrinal, and it can be for some of the silliest reasons that you have ever heard of. I came across a list of 25 reasons that churches have split. Um, It's crazy. One church split because they couldn't decide what side of the church to put the piano on. One church split because they couldn't decide how long the worship pastor's beard was allowed to be. Now, I can guarantee that was not Wyoming, right? (laughs) That was not Wyoming. There was another church split over uh, the use of cran grape juice one Sunday for communion instead of grape juice. And this one, this could be my favorite. Actually, it's heartbreaking. In one church, a number of members left because someone hid the vacuum cleaner and didn't tell anybody else where it was. And then there's external pressures, right? That's just the stuff that happens inside the church. There's external pressure on a church. There's the changes in culture. There's uh, the issue of same-sex marriage that churches, unfortunately, have fallen in different sides of the spectrum on. There's even the postmodern view of truth, that there is no truth that has put pressure on churches, even some of them to abandon the objective truth of God's Word. So there's internal pressures that divide, and there's external pressures that can divide. So the question for us is, well, how do we stay united 
as a church? How do you keep the external pressures that are bearing in on us from the culture and the internal pressures that ultimately will come out because we're all human from causing splits and divisions among us? That's what I'd like to talk to you about this morning. We'll be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 2-4. Philippians 1, 27 through 2-4. And if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or whether I remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel, and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. Since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face and now hear that I am facing. <clears throat> Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You may be seated. We're going through the book of Philippians. Look at the instructions that Paul gave this church in a, in a number of different areas. A church that is feeling the pain of persecution. A church that is feeling the pain of some division. And this morning we're going to go through these verses that I just talked about. And it's really divided up into two sections. <clears throat> First, Paul talks about standing united against outside opposition. And the way to do that, he says, is to practice worthy conduct. That's in verse 27. So we're going to go through that section. We're going to look at three ways to practice worthy conduct. And then secondly, standing united against internal division, the things that can divide from within, and that will be in verses 1 through 4. And we're actually going to look at six ways to guard against selfish ambitions. And those six are actually in your bulletin. We'll be going through those, talking about those. So first, three ways to practice worthy conduct, and then six ways to guard against selfish ambition. So we jump in now to um, verse 27. And there Paul states, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I should hear you're standing firm in one spirit. And then follow me carefully here, because Paul then says, he's, he says, Conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy. And this word, conduct yourself, it's this Greek term, it's, um, politueste is how it's pronounced. It's where we get the word politics. And the crowd would have immediately recognized that word. Well, he's saying that means we're supposed to live as good citizens. And that small town of Philippi understood what it meant to live as a good citizen, right? Because they were Greeks and they were Romans. 
And to live as a good citizen meant to be a good Greek or a good Roman. You abided by their laws. You did what they said to do. You paid your taxes. But then Paul goes further with this. He says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul's using a term they're familiar with, and now he's putting heaven in view. Now, just last week, we talked about the glory of heaven. Paul anticipated heaven, and now he's challenging this group of people to say, look, I know you're Greek and Roman citizens. He says, I'm going to challenge you to live as a citizen, not of Greece, not of Rome, but as a citizen of heaven. So he puts a heavy challenge out there to them to have this worthy conduct. So then the question is, well, what is this worthy conduct that he's talking about? Then he goes on in verse 27 and says, I should hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. So this first aspect of worthy conduct is struggling together for the gospel. That's what he means by saying contending side by side. He's talking about struggling together for the gospel. So then you and I, as Paul says, struggle together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, have we done a good job? Well, that's a good question. A few weeks ago, I read an article by a guy named Michael Spencer, and it was fairly dark Uh, Michael Spencer had written an article for the Christian Science Monitor talking about what he saw as the coming collapse of evangelicalism. Now, fortunately, things are not quite as dire as he made them out to be. We're still here, right? We're still standing. Things have not dropped off uh, the edge like he thought they were going to. But he does go further in that that, that article and offer some reasons he believes that this Uh, downward trend in evangelicalism and Christianity in America is coming. And he says this. He says, We evangelicals have failed to pass on to our young people an orthodox form of faith that can take root and survive the secular onslaught. Coming generations of Christians are going to be monumentally ignorant and unprepared for culture-wide pressures. Now he goes on that article to talk about We've never spent more money on Christianity than we have in the past 15, 20 years. And yet he says it doesn't seem to be having the impact that we had hoped it would have. That with all of the the materials and media available, we have not passed down an orthodox faith to our young people. See, that's why it's so important that we all understand what we believe that we hold on to an orthodox form of the faith. You know, there's all kinds of things that creep into Christianity. I'm going through a book right now uh, with our staff and elders called Retro Christianity that talks about uh, Christianity's kind of become like peanut butter. If you go to the store and buy a a bottle of peanut butter and you look at the ingredients, you're going to see there's a lot more there than peanuts. And the same can happen with Christianity. A lot of things can get mixed in there. Uh, Frankly, politics gets mixed in there quite often. Um, A lot of just kind of feel-good psychology can get mixed in there. And all those things get mixed in. They can kind of cloud, well, what is Christianity? I know a lot of people that say, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a Republican. (laughs) Well, hold on, okay? 
You can be a Republican and not be a Christian. It comes down to what you believe about Christ. Do you understand what he did for you, who he is, his person, his work, that he's fully God, fully man, dying for a depraved group of people, of which I'm one. So we struggle for the gospel. We work to pass down an orthodox faith to our kids in the next generation. I'm thankful we've got some, some fantastic staff members here that are working very, very hard to do that. Shane and Jody have rock-solid programs that they are, are every Sunday discipling and passing down that faith to our young people. But we struggle for the gospel. We contend for the gospel. And then we look down for the second quality of worthy conduct, and we find it in verse 28. He says, and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. Now, that Greek word uh, for intimidated, it actually refers to a horse in battle that has become frightened and has reared up and, and ran away. One has just taken off like a shot. Um, so that's the idea behind that word being intimidated. And Paul is telling the Philippians don't run away. Things may get tough. You have opponents. He's got opponents even though he's in prison right now. But don't just break loose and run from your adversaries. Contend for the gospel against these false teachers that seem to be coming in after Paul goes to a town. There's a group of people called Judaizers. They were Jews that would come in after Paul would go and evangelize to a town and convince people not to believe what they were just told. And they were very forceful. And they were very strong and strongly opinionated, and they intimidated people. And Paul's saying, don't be scared of them. You've got the truth. Don't be intimidated. So what does worthy conduct do? It serves courageously. We've got to be serving courageously. Which leads me to a question, well, what is courage? There was one definition I saw by uh, G.K. Chesterton, this English writer, and he said, courage is a bit of a conundrum. It's uh, being willing to die at the same time ha- having a strong desire to live. But I kind of like John Wayne's definition. He said, courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyway. It's just doing the thing you know you got to do. Even when you're scared to do it, courage isn't about not being afraid. It's about doing what you got to do in spite of being afraid. When Newt Rockney was coach at Notre Dame, uh, he was getting ready to face the Southern California Trojans, and they were undefeated. And this, was, this was a long time ago. Newt Rockney, the same guy that was um, credited for inventing the forward spiral pass, just an incredible football coach. But he was, knew he was going to be facing some strong competitors, so this is what he did. He went out into the town of South Bend, Indiana. That's where Notre Dame is and. He found the biggest guys he could find. His criteria was they had to be six foot five and weigh at least 300 pounds. And what did he do? He got them all in Notre Dame fighting Irish football uniforms. This is a true story. And then on the day they were facing the Trojans, he wanted them to see these guys. So they ran out ahead of the football team. So they see this. This wall of men coming out, and what happens? See, Rockney knew that they were better than Notre Dame. Uh, he knew they were stronger, fat, they were more talented. But he was able to so intimidate that other team that he beat them that day. They were, 
They were defeated before the game even started. Mentally, emotionally, that's exactly what we don't want to happen to us. There's plenty of opponents out there, and, and there's plenty of people that would seek to intimidate us. I remember when I was living in Texas, uh, Robert Jeffress was doing uh, a sermon that morning. Uh, he was preaching on homosexuality, and there were a number of protesters outside the door um, while he was getting ready to preach that sermon. But you know what? He preached it anyway, and it was okay. You know, we don't know what's coming down the pike. I, I don't know what could be happening outside our door some Sunday. If, if word gets out that we're doing a, a series that could be offensive to the culture. But you know what? We do it anyway, right? We saddle up. We persevere. We continue doing the work that God has given us to do. We struggle through. So this worthy conduct we're talking about, it struggles for the gospel. It serves courageously. I want to talk about one more aspect. It's in verse 29. And there Paul says, For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. And in order to, to understand this, we've got we to take a close work at that word granted. And it comes actually from the, the Greek word for grace. I'm throwing a lot of Greek out today. You know, I paid a lot of money learning that Greek, so I want to share it. Um, it's ekariste, and uh, it, it's the idea behind this word granted. It speaks to this actually being a privilege to be able to suffer for Christ. Now, I, I can stub my toe and think I'm suffering, let alone what so many people in some other countries have gone through to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, that's exactly what we're called to do. As a matter of fact, we're not called just to suffer, but we're called to suffer graciously. To suffer graciously. And yet, whenever I think about this kind of suffering, frankly, I, I can't help but think about my mom. <clears throat> whenever I was growing up, uh, I, was, I was very blessed to get to go to a Christian school uh, from kindergarten through 12th grade. And my dad had a good job, but it was an expensive school. So my mom, uh, she would clean her sister's house in order to help pay for me to be able to go to this Christian school. And she wasn't young when she did this. And I asked her about this years later. I was like, well, how did you, how did you feel about doing that? And she said, you know, I didn't mind one bit. She said, to put you in that school, Chad, I would do it all over again. She never complained. She never held that over my head. And I can't help but think about that when I think about suffering graciously. It's to suffer without complaining. It's to suffer, and in the midst of that suffering, choosing joy because we know that God is sovereign over all things. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about suffering graciously. I hope we never have to. But then again, it's an honor to be able to do it. And it makes resurrection that much better. So worthy conduct suffers graciously. In Ephesians 5, uh, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And I believe that we will be held responsible for how we treat God's bride. And we want to treat her well. We want to serve her well. We want to remain a part of things. We want to suffer graciously. <clears throat> so we stand united 
against opposition outside our walls uh, by struggling together for the gospel, serving courageously, and suffering graciously. All this rolled up. This is about practicing the kind of worthy conduct that Paul's talking about in these verses. So then what about internal issues, right? We can, we can split because of outside issues, things we disagree on, uh, going on outside the walls of our church. But the truth is, I think most of the problems come from within. Uh, divisiveness comes from within. So Paul's going to address that as well, and he's going to address it in verses 1 through 4. And how do we keep things from becoming divisive among us? And the answer is actually in verse 3. He says, Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. So there's the answer. We're going to work our way back down to it. Because he starts back up uh, there in verse 1. So we'll talk about, we'll go through six ways to do this. Um, Verse 1, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy. Now, he's, he's laying out these four objective spiritual realities. And he's saying if, however, he's assuming that the answer is yes. That if these things are true. Uh, in other words, um, has Christ encouraged you? Has love comforted you? Is there fellowship in the Spirit? Okay, yes, then Paul moves on to verse 2. He says, then make my joy complete. There at the beginning of verse 2. Now, it's interesting. Even though Paul's a prisoner, and I touched on these verses when we were going through Advent, but even though Paul's a prisoner, even though he's suffering, he doesn't say anything about taking away his suffering to make his joy complete. He doesn't say, make my joy complete by busting me out of here, people. I'm tired of this prison. No, it doesn't have anything to do with the circumstances. It's everything to do with these relationships among these Philippians. Then he goes on to verse 2 by saying, be of the same mind. That is to say, um, we don't have to share the same opinions about everything, right? That's impossible anyway. He's not saying we have to have the same opinions, but um, what is in view is, is both mind and will. He's saying that you and I should have the same motivation as to why we do what we do. Suffering for the cause of Christ. Uh, it's got the idea of moving in harmony together towards a common goal. Um, good marriages are like this. That's what he's saying would make my joy complete. Then he goes in verse 2 by, uh, by having the same love. This is the kind of love that he wants the Philippians to be expressing to one another. Uh, frankly, this is the kind of love I've seen taking place in this church. You've, you've shown it to me and my family since we, since we got here. You're expressing it to this, this group in Lame Deer. That's the kind of love we're talking about. Do you pray for people when they come through and when the requests come through? Then he goes on to say, be united in one spirit. And this, got, this has to do with maintaining unity, even if you see it dissolving around you. Because we're united by the same Spirit, which is God Himself. Be united in one Spirit. We have a, a common belief here. We have a common confession. And then finally, having one purpose. The purpose is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And then he goes on in verses 3 and 4. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should in humility be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Don't just be concerned about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. So then what causes disunity? What causes disunity is this selfishness. Typically, it comes when we're more interested in being right than being in relationships. Um, Do you often have trouble trying to control things? We do have controllers, right? I, I, I can do the same thing. Am I more interested in asserting my rights over others than being in relationships, trying to control people than being in relationships? I want to take a little time now, and I want to talk about how do we check our own ambitions. Ambitions aren't necessarily a bad thing, but when they become selfish ambitions, they can become bad things. And I want to get a little help by a deceased Lutheran priest by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Have any of you heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Okay, good, a good number of you. He's a very interesting guy. Uh, He was actually um, living in Germany as Hitler was rising to power. He was a Lutheran priest there. He was involved in in an assassination plot against Hitler. Um, It was thwarted, and he was actually uh, condemned to death. He was hanged by being part of that plot. But he was very concerned about two things. He was very concerned about community of believers, and he was very concerned about discipleship. Two fantastic books he's written, uh, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together. Two great books. So he came up with actually uh, seven different principles he thought would rid Christian communities of selfish ambition. I've only included six. Um, You got to the seventh one has to do with cult of personality. And I would, I would also suggest that you go out and Google these principles uh, by Bonhoeffer. I'm going to go into them in a little bit of detail, but you're going to find, if you, if you find that list, um, it, it's very helpful. So I want to walk through that. You've got a summary of these in your bulletin, the Chad summary of the principles. And the first one is to be silent. Uh, to be silent. And more specifically, um, Bonhoeffer says Christians should hold their tongues, refusing to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother. This reminded me of a story I heard about three pastors that decided to go on a fishing trip together. And they're out there in the boat, and the fish aren't biting. So one of the pastors suggests that they should confess their deepest, darkest sins to each other. So they decided to do that. The first pastor goes, he said, well, to be honest, he said, I like to go to the beach and sit there and, and watch the girls walk by. And the second pastor spoke up and said, well, to be honest, I like to go to the horse track and uh, I like to make bets on the horses. And the third pastor, he had kind of a little grin on his face, said, well, I really have a problem with gossiping. This is one of those things that we're probably all guilty of at some point. Speaking out of turn about somebody when we shouldn't. And the the option is always there to just be silent. Uh, We can always be quiet. So if there's nothing good to say, Bonhoeffer saying be quiet. These things can be divisive. They can divide us. Second, to foster humility from an awareness of your own sin. 
Somebody said to me once, if you ever walk into the perfect church, the greeters are all smiling, they're wonderful, you walk in, the congregation's all perfect, the pastor preaches the perfect sermon, you should turn around and walk away because you're just going to spoil the whole thing. It's going to become unperfect. You know, lots of things come out. You know, just recently, a, a scandal just came out about uh, Bill Hybels. It's so sad. And it's very easy to point the finger at somebody else and their sin. But then what about Chad? What about my sin? You know, I grew up, uh, my brother moved out when I was four. I was kind of an only child. And to be honest, I could be uh, sort of selfish and entitled at times. Um, so I've got my own sins of selfishness. And then, you know, whenever I go to the Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus said about the Ten Commandments, he said, I know you've been told don't murder, but if you get angry at someone and lose control of yourself, it's like you have killed them already. He says, if you have lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery against her in your heart. So be very humble um, towards your own sinfulness. As a matter of fact, when we adopt the attitude of Paul, Paul said, of all the sinners, I'm chief. And we get that kind of an attitude. We're in the right place. That my sins are worse than anyone's. <clears throat> so, foster humility. Third, listen to understand. Listen to understand. Uh, this sounds like it's very simple to do, but you know what? It's actually very difficult. I know when I'm not listening to someone if when they're talking, I'm thinking about the next thing I'm going to say. And I'm just waiting for them to stop so I can get my stuff in there. That's when I know I'm not listening. You know, one of the best signs that you're listening to someone is when they're done, you're absolutely exhausted. That's a good sign of being a good listener. Bonhoeffer says we should listen long and patiently so they'll understand their fellow Christians' needs. Long and patiently. There's this wonderful phrase uh, called active listening. And I would, I would suggest you try it sometime. If you really want to show someone you're paying attention to what they're saying, uh, you want to make eye contact. You want to lean in a little. You want to smile from time to time. And when they're done, you want to ask a few questions to show them, hey, I really was listening to what you're saying. You know, it could be that you could show someone love like they have never sensed it before just by actively listening to what they're saying. It happens so rarely now. So we listen, listen to understand. And then fourth, this, is a, this was convicting. Be interruptible. Be interruptible. Bonhoeffer said Christians should refuse to consider their time and calling so valuable that they cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs no matter how small or menial. Um, he goes into this a little bit more in his book, Life Together. He says, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by preoccupied with our more important tasks. It is a strange fact that Christians and even ministers frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they are doing God a service in this, but actually they are disdaining God's crooked yet straight path. Can I just say, ouch, ouch? 
I wanted to leave that minister, I wanted to leave that minister part off. Now, this needs a little context. You know, if someone is in the process of removing my spleen, please leave them alone. It doesn't mean that you're always interruptible in every circumstance, but are you interruptible? Do you allow for other things to come into your world and disrupt what's going on? And a lot of times you have no choice, right? You can't control the traffic. I was driving down 5th Street one time, and I'd stopped. I'd only been here a couple of months. A steamroller came around the corner and knocked down a pole that had just been placed. Uh, Why? What are you going to do with that? You just got to wait. Be interruptible. Don't get tore up if if something is... um, Slowing you down. There are holy interruptions. Fifth, bear the burdens of your brothers and sisters. This is a tough one. I had to wrestle with this one a little bit. Bonhoeffer said that Christians should bear the burden of their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, that part's pretty easy to get. But then this next part, both by preserving their freedom and by forgiving their sinful abuse of that freedom. Now, what is he talking about here? He is going as far as to say that until you understand your brothers and sisters in Christ themselves as being a burden, then you're not really getting it. He's saying that until you get that, they are objects that you are asserting your rights over and manipulating to get your own way. That that you may be trying to control them or shape them into something that just makes them easier for you to be around. My mom used to say, Chad, it takes all kinds of people to make this world go around. I heard that a hundred times growing up. If she heard me complaining about somebody, Chad, it takes all kinds of people to make this world go around. There's type A people, type B people. There are free spirits. There are the rigid people. And God is shaping and forming these people. So, yes, not only do you come alongside your brothers and sisters and help them bear their burdens... You bear with them. You bear with them. So we bear with our brothers and sisters. And finally, declare the word to your brothers and sisters. Christians should declare God's word to their fellow believers, and this is key, when they need to hear it. When they need to hear it. This echoes uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So when do they need to hear it? You know, on any given Sunday morning, when you all come in, you need to hear it. I've got a responsibility to teach it to you. In our classes, in our classrooms, we need to hear it. And it's not just in those moments. It's also when we need to encourage each other. Men, how awesome would it be if you went through Proverbs 31, which sort of outlines uh, this, this outstanding woman in God's eyes. How cool would it be if you went through that proverb and explained to your wife how you see each of those qualities in her? What if you did that in front of the kids? You know, we all need that kind of encouragement. We need to do that well. So we stay united, putting all this together. How do we stay united as a church? By practicing this worthy conduct and by avoiding selfish ambition. I want to close um, with this 
It's actually a scene from a movie called Gladiator. It stars Russell Crowe. There's one point in that movie, um, just to give you a little background, it's about this Roman general named Maximus. And Maximus, through a maze of events, he ends up being um, relegated to a slave. He loses all of his rights, and then he becomes this unvanquished, powerful gladiator. And he goes and he defeats all these other gladiators until finally he and his team are going to go into the Colosseum in Rome. And as they're progressing down this dark tunnel, just about to go into the sunlight of the Colosseum, he says, men, stay together. They proceed to go out into the Colosseum. They're about to reenact the Battle of Carthage within that Colosseum. So he and his men, they huddle up tightly right in the center. They got their shields up. They've got their spears out. And he says it again. He says, men, stay together. He says, whatever comes out of that gate, we stay together. Well, the gate goes up, and screaming out of that gate are these chariots pulled by these giant war horses. Uh, they're shaking the ground as they run. And, and on those chariots are men with spears and armor and bows, and they ride out. And they start circling that little band of men in the middle of that coliseum, and they get tighter and tighter. One guy gets nervous, and he jumps out, and he's immediately cut down. Again, he screams out, stay together. And as the chariots circle, and as it gets tighter and tighter and tighter, finally he screams, now. And they jump out and they decimate those Romans. How do we stand against the pressures from the outside? How do we stand against growing tension against Christianity? How do we withstand anything that comes out of the gate, church? We stay together. We stay united, firm in one spirit. Please pray with me. Lord, you have called us to a high calling by virtue of trusting you. And you give us the strength to do it. God, let us not be divided. Whether it be gossip, whether it be um, a lack of patience with our brothers and sisters, I pray, Lord, that we would stand united, firm on a, a common confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask it in the name of Jesus.